0: Many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who had called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him to the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. What I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Pray. Father, help us to, in humility, look at exactly what it is you're getting at in this text. That we wouldn't miss
0: things that are true for the specific truth you want so clearly to bear down on us through this letter. In other words, help us not come to this text all about ourselves, even seeking things that are true, but rather, first of all, seeking what it is you are wanting to aim at hard and heavy by this passage. And that we would think of how to properly feel the weight of that.
1: In Christ's name I pray.
0: Galatians 1.11 through 2.14 are the largest autobiographical section in Paul's letters. Not only that, they are the largest biographical section we have in the New Testament. Of course, that is excluding the autobiographical section we have in the New Testament. That's, of course, excluding Jesus Christ is the supreme author and subject of the New Testament. But outside of that, any kind of autobiographical content we get, this is the biggest chunk that comes in the New Testament. Paul is a fascinating figure. His conversion is most dramatic. His post conversion life is worthy of imitation it's not without reason that he says to the Corinthians I urge you then be imitators of me but if that's as far as you go with a passage like this
1: I'm afraid you've missed the forest for the tree
0: don't miss the gospel for the apostle or you miss the apostleship which is gospel centers which the gospel which his apostleship centers on. This section is very much about Paul, and yet it's not about him at all. It is as though Paul is testifying in court, zealous to defend his apostleship, but for the sake of the gospel. It's the gospel that he's zealous to defend here. And so it's easy to take a passage like this, as we do with so many Old Testament narratives, and preach a Be like message. Preach a hero message. Be like Paul. And yet it comes across the very kind of pharisaical glory seeking before men that Paul is against in this letter, in this passage. You must beware of what Brian Chapel calls preaching the deadly bees. Be this, be that, be like Paul. Such preaching is all sting devoid of the sweet honey of the gospel. And whenever I say preaching the deadly bees, I have reference to the kind of preaching you should be doing to yourself as you read your Bible as well. We should indeed wish to be holy, our God is holy, but if we only come to this passage with that kind of mentality, you'll likely find yourself being like Paul as he was before his conversion. Pharisaical, self-righteous
1: people pleaser. Paul
0: says that he is not now a people pleaser, a man pleaser. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Yeah. The four that begins this takes you back up to the anathema he's pronounced in verses 8 and 9. If we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. Men-pleasers typically don't talk this way. Democrats will anathematize Republicans. But to get Democrat votes, Republicans will anathematize Democrats but to get Republican votes. They anathematize, but only in a way that's safe, that pleases men. Paul anathematizes all who preach any other gospel, pronouncing a divine curse on all human pride. The media will let a Democrat slam a Republican. They will even let, occasionally, a Republican slam a Democrat. But what you will not find is them allowing the Proclaimer of the Gospel to ever anathematize with such a broad stroke as is done here. Except if they're able to give commentary and anathematize that anathema. If any amen is given to the kind of curse and judgment that Paul has pronounced here, it's because you find a heart that's been softened, that's humble, that seeks the glory of God rather than the glory of man. Why does Paul want to make it clear that he's not a people pleaser? Well, you remember false teachers are troubling this church, verse 7. They are preaching another gospel. And as they're preaching another gospel, that means they're undermining Paul's gospel, undermining his apostleship. They are very likely making an accusation that Paul is a people pleaser. But even if they're not, what Paul does here is flip things around to show that it's actually the false teachers who are human humorers, people pleasers exposing the ugly pride that goes under their false teaching, motivating it in contrast to the God-glorifying gospel that they'd received through Him. If Paul is trying to please men, he says, verse 10, I would not be a servant, a slave of Christ. Men-pleasers are slaves to men. The men they try to please. Paul says, "If, if this is the case that I was trying to please men, I wouldn't be a slave of Christ. You remember Jesus said, Matthew 11, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and a servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? you're wanting to be a people pleaser, do not become a Christian. The resurrected Christ made this very clear to Paul. Concerning him, he told Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now remember which team Paul was batting for. He was, with the All Star, he was an all-star on the Clint Pincher team. And he goes to this upstart farm team. If one's wanting to please men, they normally don't switch sides from the killing side to the dying side. At the end of his letter, Paul says, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus, 6.17. In reference to, among other things, being stoned once, beaten with rods three times, scourged five times. Paul's not being a man pleaser, being a servant of Christ is evident in this. The gospel that he preaches is not man's gospel. It doesn't find its source or origin in man. More strictly translated, rough, uh, verse 11 would read, The gospel that was gospeled, same word, verb form. The gospel that was gospeled by me is not man's gospel. The good news that was good newsed by me is not man's good news. It's the false teachers who are preaching another gospel, a different gospel, verse 6. It's the false teachers who have man's gospel because whereas Paul bears in his body the marks of Jesus, these false teachers want to mark others' bodies for their own glory. Just before he speaks of bearing on his body the marks of Jesus in chapter 6, he says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They want to please men, not be persecuted by men. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. And so Paul receives his gospel not from men. He's not taught it by men, verse 12. Now, we have the same divine gospel, but we have received it from men. We've been taught it by men. Yes, it's the Holy Spirit who takes the very words of God and illumines them, who opens our eyes to behold His truth. That's very true. But He does so using the means of men. With Paul, there was no mediation. He received the gospel of Christ directly from the Christ of the gospel. And this is what apostleship means. Paul's apostleship was not from men or through men, chapter 1, verse 1. Likewise, his gospel, which corresponds as part of this apostleship, he didn't receive it from men. He was not taught it by men. Whenever Paul saw the glory of the risen Christ, shining bright as the noonday sun, Christ said to him, Rise, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things which you have seen me. I've appeared for this purpose, that you might speak of what you've seen and speak, testify, witness, to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul saw Christ that he might speak of Christ. And as he's speaking of Christ, others see. But you notice that their seeing is different from Paul's their seeing is mediated through Paul's word so that their beholding is the beholding of faith. But Paul saw the risen Christ in his glory so that as an apostle, as a messenger of Christ, he might speak of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 9.1, he asks, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Christ? You see the correlation. This seeing and beholding of Christ and being an apostle. He explains to the Ephesian church, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Paul didn't receive the good news secondhand. This isn't a rumor that he's propagating. This is not even coming from a trusted source. This is not the associated press. Handing something to Paul that he then runs with. This is the apostolic press. This is coming straight from Christ through his authorized messengers to his church. And now the remainder of this text is a chunk of biographical detail meant to support that assertion. This is his apostolic alibi, if you will. And first you have his former life in verses 13 through 14. And his former life, you see, was a life in Judaism. Now, this is a life not dedicated so much to the Old Covenant as it is to his people. It's a life in Judaism. The, the reference point is not the God of Israel, but Israel and what she had become with all of her traditions and additions. It was a perversion of the Old Covenant. He was advancing in Judaism Among his peers, above his peers, among his people. In other words, he was pleasing men. That's what advancing involves here. And if you can't see it here, go back up to verse 10 and listen carefully. For am I now seeking, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please men? if I were still trying to please men, He's speaking about right now, I'm not pleasing men. And if I were still trying to, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. There was a time whenever I was trying to please men, and he's putting the false teachers into that category of who he once was. Paul was a Pharisee. This is Phariseeism. This is what it looked like. John writes in his Gospel, chapter 12, 42-43, Nevertheless, even many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. What, what was it that the kind of attitude that was being generated by these Pharisees that produced this kind of fear? They did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. See, Paul says that this way of life wasn't about faithfulness to God's covenant, but it was a zeal for the traditions of men. Paul's former life was one of man-pleasing, according to man's gospel, or man's glory. And so if Paul was a human humorer, why would he leave that to be a servant of Christ? And the zeal with which he went at this is evident in the fury with which he went after the church, verse 13. You've heard of my former life, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. He wanted to snuff the church out. In Acts chapter 8, we're told that Paul approved of Stephen's execution. And it goes on to say that he was ravaging the church. Entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Just before his conversion, this is what he was doing. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And once he had them bound and back at Jerusalem, what did he seek but for them to be executed? Recollecting on his former life, he said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities, Acts 26, 9-11. All of that changed
1: in an instant. Why? Note the shift from who Paul was and what Paul did to who God is and what God did. Verse 15. But when he. Elsewhere of his former life and
0: works, Paul says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Christ And what made this shift in Paul was God. But when He... God revealed His Son to Paul. Specifically, the God who revealed His Son to Paul was the God who set Him apart and called Him. Now, it's easy to miss the truth of what Paul is saying here for truth. It's easy to be thinking something that's true, but in the wrong category here. Set apart, called, revealed. These are all salvation words that we can use in reference to ourselves. God sets apart those that He saves. He sets them apart for salvation, and He sets them apart by salvation. And so, one aspect of this we call election, or choosing. And like Paul's being set apart here, our being set apart happens before we're born. Paul uses Jacob to illustrate this in Romans 9. Not only so, he writes, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue Not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. We're set apart
1: not only before we're born, we're set apart
0: before creation was. Ephesians 1 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. God also calls His elect. Those He's chosen, He calls. Through His Word concerning His Son, the Spirit acts and makes us new so that in that the Father is effectually calling us and we respond to His call. Romans 8.30 explains those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. Whenever God calls, those He calls are justified. Finally, this calling gives sight. There's a kind of revealing of the Son that comes in because of this calling. To those who were blind, they now see. Paul instructs the Corinthians. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ this kind of seeing or the beholding that comes because of God's call. But remember that the revealing that's being spoken of here is a revealing that qualifies Paul as an apostle. This isn't a revealing that we're privy to. This this isn't a seeing that we have. And likewise, the setting apart and the calling being spoken of here are distinct. Now for Paul... Both kinds of calling, both kinds of being set apart, both kinds of revealing happened simultaneously. Paul's call to be an apostle and his call to salvation happened at the same moment. So Paul was not just called to salvation, he was called as an apostle. He was not just set apart unto salvation, he was set apart as an apostle. He didn't just see Christ with the eyes of faith. He saw the resurrected Christ in His glory. And so Romans 1.1 speaks of the same being set apart and same calling that are referenced here. Paul, servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. This is the same thing Jeremiah speaks of when he says, before, or this is God speaking to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated, meaning of that word, set apart. I consecrated, you. I appointed you a prophet to the nation. You remember Isaiah also said, Isaiah 49 1. Yahweh called me from my womb. And so too with Paul.
1: And after
0: this setting apart caught up with Paul, so that in a specific point in time, he called him, revealed his son to him. After that happened, after revelation, there was no consultation. Verses 16 through 24. The point of all the details that Paul gives from this point forward is to solidify and establish that point, even such that, verse 20, he swears before God that these things are so. Paul didn't immediately go into Jerusalem so as to be able to consult with the apostles and make sure he got everything right. Most immediately, Acts 9, 19-21 tells us right after this, he preached. He didn't need to be taught. He didn't need to consult. He received it such that he was able immediately to preach Christ. How jealous any preacher should be of this gift. He didn't immediately go to Jerusalem. After preaching, he went to Arabia and then later, verse 16 and 17, he returned to Damascus. He went into Arabia for a period of about three years. These years are a mystery. It doesn't disclose really any detail about them. Some speculate that this was a time of reflection and meditation on Christ. Remember Jesus said to him, you're going to testify of the things in which you have seen me and in which I will appear to you. And so, there's a speculation, and I think a well-founded one, that these years were something equivalent to the three years that the other apostles had spent with the Lord. I think there's much to that, but the Scriptures also make it clear that Paul, while he was in Arabia, preached as well. There's just one little detail that brings us out. In Acts 9, you're told that whenever Paul was preaching in Damascus, the Jews were plotting to kill him, and that's the reason they let him down out of that basket to escape from the city. Well, listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, because just as with our Lord, the conspiracy was pretty thick, it wasn't just one group. 2 Corinthians 11:32 32 through 33, at Damascus, the governor under King Aretas, was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. King Aretas was the king of Thebatia, which is Arabia. Why is that king trying to intercept Paul at Damascus when he's returning there from Arabia? He's the king of Arabia. Why is he there to kill him? Because the gospel doesn't please men. And he's hoping to kill him. He's evidently done something while he's been in Arabia all these years to upset the king of that region so that he's waiting to kill him when he gets back to Damascus. After fleeing Damascus, he comes to Jerusalem three years after his conversion, verses 18-19. through And he's there only two weeks and only speaks to two apostles. Three years and then two weeks with two apostles. This is hardly anything for any of these false teachers to go on to say he's gleaned this from others. It wasn't directly from Christ. He's just a people pleaser. Now, this initially does seem to conflict with Acts 9, 26-28 where we read, that when he had come to Jerusalem he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching bodily in the, in the name, preaching boldly, excuse me, in the name of the Lord. Now if Paul only met Peter and James, I think those two are clear by the Scripture to be substantial enough to say they were representative of the apostles. So I think that's my first take here. Yes, he probably only saw Peter and James, but the idea was that he was brought before them in in the sense that they were representative to give a verdict of and for the apostles. But on the other hand, Perhaps it's just that he had so little interaction with them. He brought before them, he spoke with them, but there wasn't any kind of interaction with them. It was just that he saw them in a brief instance and nothing more. The point that Paul's laboring at is how long after his conversion it had been and how little interaction he had. And then he goes to Syria, Cilicia, where... uh, more specifically, Acts 9.30, pinpoints he was at Tarsus. And while there, he says he remained virtually unknown in person to the church, churches of Judea, verse 22. Now, we just read in Acts 9.28 that he was going in and out among them, preaching boldly. So you might think there's another tension here. But I think some sermons over a span of two weeks hardly qualifies Paul to be well-known among the churches of Judea. How many of you remember Rod Connor? Glad that illustration worked so well. Rod was with to every tribe. And he spent a weekend with us, spoke multiple times. And that was only a matter of five years ago. And how few of you at the mention of his name didn't recollect who he was. And how many of you are there Are there of you who weren't even here to be able to remember this in the first place in just a span of five years? And so can you see, if Paul was only there for two weeks, why he would not be known in person to the churches of Judea? Not just the church at Jerusalem, but to the churches of Judea. Most didn't know Paul,
1: but they did know of him. And they glorified God
0: because of what God had done in and through him. Paul was not pleasing men. But among those with whom God was pleased in Christ, they glorified God
1: because of what he had done in Paul. So yeah, I could preach a hero message
0: here. I'd call for you to emulate Paul. I could preach a conversion message and, and speak of the wonders of, a, of how God changes people. And I could do these things and be faithful to the text, not saying anything other than what is in the text. I could make good points of application such as, does your life have the same kind of gospel focus that we see with Paul here? Whenever you get, when you get excited about your biography, is it out of zeal for you or out of zeal for the gospel? We could We could do things like that, and that's a good point of application. That's a good point of meditation. There's nothing wrong with making some application like that. We need to ask ourselves, what's the central point that's being driven home here? What does God intend to say to these Galatians and to us? And the central point that should bear down upon us is the veracity of Paul's apostleship and thus the truthfulness of his gospel.
1: If that's not appealing, ask yourself,
0: is it because I want something that centers more on me? Something that's about my performance, something that's about what I do, something so that if, when I walk away from here, I can take action that will be pleasing the sight of men. You might think to yourself, I've got no beef with Paul's apostleship. What do I walk away with here? I need to be able to glean something out of this text that's about me. Again, there's no no problem in making good application of some points that are here, but I don't think you're immune from the central point that Paul is after here.
1: The gospel has no roots in men. It does not please sinful man. Rather, it comes from above, glorifies
0: the triune God. Don't for a minute fail to realize that you need this truth shouted at you just as powerfully as Paul is doing with Galatians here. There is a Galatian inside every
1: one of us. We are prone to practically doubt Paul's gospel.
0: For man's gospels every day. Some kind of good news that would puff
1: up and promote pride. We are
0: surrounded by teachers who speak other gospels and we want to to hear them. There's something that abides with us. Though we've been made new in Christ, this side of glory, there's something in us that man's gospel appeals to. And thus it is that Paul is perpetually attacked. Thomas Jefferson in in a letter to William Short said, Paul was the first corrupter of the doctrines of Jesus. And that heresy is still flourishing. Others, rather than saying Paul corrupted, corrupt Paul. Such as N.T. Wright and, and the new perspective on Paul that wants to twist,
1: pervert his gospel.
0: But every one of us, this side of glory, has something which we must constantly strain to mortify. That would seek glory for ourselves, pleasing men. But hear it again: the church is built on the one foundation of Jesus Christ, laid by the apostles and the prophets. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, in so far as she remains faithful to this apostolic foundation. Let's settle the matter in our hearts again and again and again. Let us hear this apostolic word and make firm. Resolve all anew that there is this gospel and this gospel alone. All other gospels are no gospels and on them, all of them, this emphatic apostolic anathema abounds. Let them be a curse. Here's the good news of Jesus Christ, which has no roots in men, which comes from heaven above directly to those he chose To be given to His church. This is the apostolic gospel. That the Father.
1: Sent His beloved Son.
0: Becoming flesh as the second Adam. As our representative. As our substitute. To live under the law.
1: Keeping it perfectly. In love to His Father so that we might be clothed with His righteousness. And and not only coming
0: under the law in this way, but coming under the law representative of all of us in our law breaking. That He might bear the curse and wrath of God. And then, because He was the Son of God, because death could not lay claim on such a one, He rose from the grave, defeating death, as the first fruits of the resurrection, that we might rise with him, promising
1: that the full harvest will come. He will return. All things will be made new. So that grace and peace might now and forevermore. Flow to us from the triune dog. That is not man. gospel. Hurts. Damn them. This is the blessed good news of Jesus Christ. Pray be. Father,
0: forgive our wayward hearts. Forgive our pride. Forgive us that we're so concerned so often about what man thinks of us rather than who You've declared us to be in Christ. And in gratitude and joy, responding to You in love out of that. Believing all Your promises towards us in Jesus. So grant us grace now. To be zealous for the Gospel of Christ. To, to realize the, the blessed foundation that's laid for us. And to resolve to stick there. Not be tempted to go astray. In
1: Christ's name, Amen.